It's kind of an introduction, a reminder of where we are, not only in the church here, but the focus of, of our, our meditations. Uh, we are... We are in the second part of the church year. We call this the season of Pentecost. This is the longest season of the church year. It's also referred to as the time of the church. Uh, This year it happens to be 26 weeks long from Pentecost to the last day of the church year. And for those who are more familiar with counting days by when is Christmas, it's 24 weeks from today. I like to ask myself a question during this time of the year. Um, What is my response to all Jesus has done for me? And the reason is, is that most of the big celebrations in the first part of the year focus around what Jesus did, what he accomplished for us. We don't have any of those big Jesus celebrations unless you keep in mind that every Sunday is a Jesus celebration. Because every Sunday we have the opportunity to gather for divine service, which is a reminder that when it comes to our relationship with God, God is the one who does all the work. God is the one that demonstrates time and time again, even when I'm thinking about what my response to him is, he's the one that actually provides that response in and through me. For our meditation today, we're looking at our gospel lesson, Matthew 11, 28 to 30. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, this really is a time to, again, be overwhelmed with your service to us, how you provided for us in so many ways and so overwhelmingly by giving us your grace through Jesus, our Savior. Especially today, Father, I pray that we would be able to get out of the way of your grace and to actually allow it to give and do for us that which you intend to bring us in a closer relationship with you and with each other. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Fifty years ago, in the early 1970s, psychologists were examining the effects of different learning scenarios using laboratory rats. But it wasn't really all fun and games. Sure, they had the little mazes and other little things to see if they could actually teach, of all things, a rat how to do those sorts of things. But there was one particularly vicious experiment that the researchers did with the rats. And that was they electrified a portion of the cage floor that they were standing on. They wanted to see how they would react. Well, react is what they did. They quickly learned to evade the shocking floor by jumping to a different part of the cage where the shock wasn't. But when the entire floor was electrified, an interesting phenomenon occurred. The rats actually attempted to get away. But upon realizing that no matter where they went in the cage, there was no way of escaping, 
birthday shock? They acquiesced. They quit trying. There was nowhere safe for them to go. And so they settled down and accepted being shot. They had learned that they were helpless. Even when escape routes were later offered by turning off a portion of the, of the cage floor, they still didn't move. The rats had learned there was no point in trying and failing, and they helplessly refused to move. Poor little guys. The same phenomenon occurs with people. When we try something over and over and over and we fail, we learn to become helpless. And the obvious answer is to stop trying. The burden is too great, too heavy. It's too debilitating. All you have to do is watch little kids' uh, games, soccer baseball, whatever they are, you'll, you'll see them out there, and there'll be some of the little kids that are really good at what they're doing, and there's other kids that spend more time playing in the dirt or pulling up weeds than they do actually playing the game. Sadly, the response of many parents isn't to realize, I'm talking to a five-year-old here, a six-year-old. Part of introducing kids to sports is to make it enjoyable enough that they want to come back. If their muscles aren't coordinated yet at five, wait until they're six, seven. But don't put so much pressure on your little kid that they just become embarrassed because they can't succeed like everybody else. It's no use trying. I might as well give up. I don't know how many of you ever frequent a, a, a park on a Saturday when they have these tournaments for the little kids. Hundreds of kids are there. And yet by the time most of them get to high school, they've already stopped playing the sport. They've already learned the lesson. Why do I even try? Even though they may have grown an additional six inches and put on a good 50 pounds, they're a different kid than they were before. They've already learned they're not, no good at it. They've tried to please mom or dad, and in a weird way, dad and mom say, well, you tried, that's good, but you can hear the disappointment in parents' voices. Why isn't my kid like the other kids? He's not succeeding. And kids then quit. It's just too hard. And we carry that even into adulthood. That's why when we come to our text, this is so important for us to stop and process what Jesus is actually saying. He says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Well, the first thing we have to do is figure out what does it mean when Jesus says, you who labor or heavy laden. He's not referring to carrying a backpack up a mountain. He's not referring to hooking yourself onto some sled uh, and trying to pull it through the yard or something like that. He's actually talking about our relationship with God. Is our relationship with God a burden? Well, the quick answer is, well, absolutely not. This is church. I would never agree with something like that. And yet, 
If you were to write a job description for what we would call the average uh, Christian, how'd you word it? Or how do you define doing what you do as a Christian? I think it's a reasonable question to ask. I mean, if you look at media today, what's on television especially, you're likely to think that Christians are, are people who don't do certain things. Uh, they don't drink, they don't dance, don't get abortions, they don't smoke, and they don't chew, and they don't associate with those who do. Did you ever do that one when you were a kid? And so when it plays out in any kind of a scene, they're kind of depicted as weird, not like the normal person. It gets even worse when you ask people that don't go to church for a definition of what a Christian is or what it's like to attend a Christian church. Christians come off as those that are are prone to judge, to look down on others, particularly those who act a certain way. Christian love and compassion comes with strings attached. It's shown to those who want to change or change with the goal of becoming more like them. Even inside the church, we are tempted to view our faith primarily as doing right or acting a right way or not doing wrong or doing the wrong thing. And actually, this makes a lot of sense. The Bible is full of laws, instructions on how to live, what to do and not to do. As cool as our Sunday school and confirmation programs are, they are still delivered in a legalistic sort of way, aren't they? Know this. You can't do that. Yes, remember, Jesus loves you. Even the gift of grace comes across as a, something that we have to remember or have to do. Now, I'm not saying it's a bad thing. I'm just saying that the thought process is there that we have to do. Because we know the rules, we live with the knowledge that we need to live up to them. But the truth of the matter is, none of us do. In fact, we really can't. The Apostle Paul in our epistle lesson this morning kind of summed it up. He says, for I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do this, I keep on doing. His conclusion, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? So how do you handle this fact of faith? Well, for some, the tendency is to cover it up. To not be completely honest with ourselves thus with others, and ultimately with God. Now, we come to church with the intent of becoming right with God. We even start off with the confession of our sins. 
and the words of forgiveness, the absolution that are pronounced over us. And yet, we conceal the worst, most sinful, most broken parts of ourselves because we're too ashamed, too embarrassed, maybe at a loss because we came here last week confessing the same sins. In fact, we've been doing it again and again and again and again. Sometimes we really don't confess them at all. And I'm going to own this one because I know. So if he happens to identify with you, it does. We come to our sinful confession and we know a certain sin is there. We don't like it. We don't want to do it, but we know we're going to. And the confession actually keeps that as a part of it. As I'm saying the words, I don't feel the deep repentance and sadness for this sin. I, I actually kind of identify with a fondness toward it. Yes, it's a sin, but you know what? <laughs> we got a big event planned this Friday. <laughs> and I know it's going to happen. And I, I don't want to do it, but I'm going to do it anyway. Uh, so what kind of a confession is that? Where's the sorrow over our sins? When we have in the back of our mind, not just that we're going to do it again like Paul is saying, but that we're not even going to try not to do it. We kind of relish, if you will, the sin. Not only do we hide this from ourselves, but because we do that, we also then have the tendency of hiding it from other people. I mean, after all, if they knew the real you, would they even speak to you again? Would they let your children play with their children because they know you used to or you did this or that? We'd be outcasts if anybody ever knew the truth about us, right? I hear that a lot. Pastor, if you really knew me, I do know you because I know me. I know what I'm capable of. I know what you're capable of. You're not going to be rejected because of a sin unless, of course, you relish, you celebrate it. You're not going to change. You don't even have a desire to change it. Then we have to talk about the extent of God's love for us in Jesus. Here's the problem. Once we begin to think that our Christian life is an exercise in how well I can hide my sin from you so at least I can keep up the experience, it all becomes keeping up experiences. And it perpetuates then the lie that being Christian is primarily about being good people or at least better than your favorite straw man and this leads us then into the cycle of trying harder. When we fall short, we pick ourselves up, we dust ourselves off, and we know this isn't how it's supposed to be, and so we commit ourselves uh, 
to do better. We're going to commit ourselves to others that we're going to do better, even to God. It's just a matter of me trying harder. And you know what? This time we're serious. This time I really mean it. This time I'm going to get it right. This time I'm going to live the way I know I should. And we do. Well, we do get really serious about it. We try really hard to get it right. But that only lasts for a while. How long? You know the answer to that. Sometimes you can go weeks. Sometimes you can only go a matter of an hour. Maybe even only a matter of minutes. And then we fail. And we're right back to where we started in the first place. We see this again and again in Scripture. The children of Israel do this over and over and over. Things haven't changed in 2023. We're not more advanced. We're not smarter. We don't have it all figured out like people think we should. Instead... We have to admit we struggle with the same stuff. And like the rat that we were talking about in the opening, sometimes we find ourselves helpless. We can't change our thing, our, ourselves. We can't do the things we should, and we don't do the things we know we should. And when we can't stop this cycle of trying to be better, even though we always are failing, we have then the tendency to just sit there and take the shock. We go through the motions because we know that's the right thing to do. We confess our sins, we hear the forgiveness, and yet what's the point in even trying? We're just going to fail anyway. Some people conclude that's what makes Christianity <clears throat> such a lie. <laughs> we just can't do it. It's an exercise in futility. Or that something is fundamentally broken and wrong with me as an individual. I, I just can't do it. I just, I can't bear the weight. I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. Now, it's into this reality that Jesus speaks. Come to me, all you are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Hmm. My yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Being a Christian a child of God is, is not about being a better person, and it never has been. In fact, there's a well-worn Latin phrase I, I think some of you may already know. It's simul justus et peccator. That's how I say it. Other people say peccator. I think it's peccator. Pastor Preem, peccator. It must be right. What does it mean? It's, it means at the same time, just 
and a sinner. At the same time, forgiven, made right with God, and a sinner. We're both of these. And let me tell you, there's great freedom in recognizing and owning this reality to your life. Why? Because you don't have to pretend anymore. We get to be real, true, honest sinners with real, true, powerful, loving Savior. We fall short and fail. We're not surprised. But we're not home yet. Heaven's our home. Nor we do we invest a ton of time and energy in trying harder. Understand what I'm saying. When anything starts with me, I'm going to fix this. I'm going to make it better. I'm going to do right with you, God, and others. It's destined to fail because it's dependent upon me, a sinner. Yes, forgiven and saved by Christ, but still, at the same time, I'm a sinner. I, I can't do it. That burden, that yoke, that trying has all been carried and done for us by Christ. Christ carried the burden when he died on the cross for our sins. Every shortfall, every time we didn't keep all these rules, Christ kept them for us because he wore the yoke of obedience on our behalf. And when he wore that yoke, he gave to us his yoke of forgiveness, his gracious gift of love. Please understand, Christ lived a perfectly obedient life in his relationship with the Father on our behalf. We are counted as his own. We are counted as right because of what he did. And it's not just me. It's the, it's the sins of other people. It's the sins of the whole world. Jesus died for them all. Now when the Holy Spirit creates faith in our hearts, he put this yoke of Christ on top of us, each one. Think about how that feels. How little it is. How easy it is to carry the load of your life knowing that Jesus already pulled the weight on your behalf. My yoke is easy. My burden is light, he says. Now, if this sounds all too easy, let me ask you this. How are you holding up under your burden to be better today than you were last week? How has Satan used the guilt of your sin against you in such a way that you feel trapped. You don't know how to fix it by yourself, even though you got to try, right? You got to do your best. Your best isn't good enough. My best isn't good enough. I purposely use this picture because it, it kind of gives a subtle view of Jesus on the cross. Maybe what I should do is use this one. That's more true to life, if you know what I mean. You think it was easy for Jesus? 
You think he just skated through and said, <laughs> yeah, this is, this is nothing. What's good enough so that Jesus will forgive you and, and give you rest? What's the passing grade? Is it the intention of your heart? I'm trying. That's the most important thing. That's how we judge ourselves. We judge ourselves by how we think our intentions, our attitude. You know what people judge us by? Our actions. And even though we think good intentions are good, we know there's a certain road that's paved and it's going some way. All on good intentions. So what can you do? What's, what's good enough for you to be able to say, Jesus, give me rest. Look where I've come. I finally overcome. I finally got good enough. I'm at least better than the average Christian. Does that work in your mind? It's because of that that week after week we come. Because the truth is, is that we forget who we are. Oh, we identify with the sinner part, but we forget that we're also 100% a saint. Sinner when it comes to our connection to ourselves, but a saint when it comes to the, the relationship that we have with God the Father through Jesus our Savior. Now, many of us today are going to walk out that door, hopefully not to lunch right away because we got Bible class first, which is a kind of a lunch. But you're going to go back into your life, into your day. And although you've heard these words, and these are not the first time you've heard these words, we'll struggle with them sometime. Maybe today, maybe even now, before we even get out of the sermon. You've already decided that it just doesn't sound right that Jesus would do that for somebody like me. It seems like there should be more. It seems too cheap, too free. Why would God do something like that for someone like me? Because he loves you. Plain and simple, God is love. And you can go all the way back to the time of Adam and Eve. We look at their sin and God's response to that sin, and we go, whoa, is he a righteous, angry God? And those guys, boy, they really got it for eating that fruit, disobeying God. And yet, before any consequences were spoken to them, he gives them a promise of a Savior, a seed of the woman who will crush the power of Satan. What did Adam and Eve do? Adam and Eve sinned. What did God do? God promised that I will fix that sin myself. The Old Testament is all about pointing forward to the time of Christ, even as people struggled all the time with trying to do the right thing and not doing it. Because we can't save ourselves. Only God can. We don't have to pretend anymore. We're beloved not because of what we've done or can do or ever will do. We're loved by God because he has chosen that relationship with us. We are part of his creation. 
we have been marked with water and the word in holy baptism to bear the yoke of Christ. We are invited to come to the table of our Lord on a regular basis with nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling, and I receive the very body and blood of Jesus for the forgiveness of my sins. So you're not beloved because you try harder. Or this Sunday, I'm going to get it right, and I really mean it. It's a struggle. It's hard. But the next time you find yourself facing this useful tool of the evil one who uses your guilt and your shortcomings and your failures to drive a wedge between you and God, when that happens, pause. Give thanks to God for what Satan is trying to do for you. Thank you, God, that Satan is trying again drive a wedge between you and me. But it only brings me to a greater understanding in this moment of what Christ has done for me. You are loved because of what has already been done. He died your death and then gave you his yoke, his, his grace. So we don't have to pretend. We don't have to lie. We can actually be open and honest, not only with God, but with each other, because therein lies the strength of the Christian, not in acting like I don't sin or hiding sins from people, but openly, honestly confessing my sins to God and remembering that that truth sets me free. For the burden of Christ rests upon us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.